This is Power of the Streets, and this is the first episode of a podcast series brought to you by Human Rights Watch about how we speak truth to power. I'm Audrey Kawire Wabwire, and I'm based in Nairobi, Kenya. In our first season, I'm honored to hear from some of the people driving Africa's Me Too movement. Everyone we speak to in the series has a second, a minute, or an hour when they realize that they need to make a change. The moment when they decide to step up and rise. What is going on right now in um, our continent is a huge awakening. And I think in that sense, it's, it's, it's okay to compare that with um, the Me Too movement in the West, in the West, because it also thrives on that huge awakening. But in so many ways, it's also different. Kiki Mordi is a prolific filmmaker, writer, and activist from Nigeria. She has always been a storyteller, and media gave her a platform to use her voice. Kiki spoke to us from her home in Lagos, Nigeria. So we may not be looking at movie stars outing another movie star. Maybe we're looking at um, young women coming out to out their professor as a sexual sexual abuser. Maybe we're looking at outing a system, not even a person. A system has been complicit in sexual assault and sexual abuse. But I would say that in Africa, the movement, I don't know what to call it yet. I don't know if it's the Me Too movement, but whatever that movement is, it's moving. And... It's, it's, it's up to us to be on the right or wrong side of history. In 2012, Kiki was pursuing a biochemistry degree from the University of Benin when one of her lecturers demanded sex from her and harassed her until she dropped out. She then devoted her journalism to speak out against harassment. Kiki produced an investigative documentary film called Sex for Grades. The film exposed the practice by some university lecturers in Nigeria and Ghana where they demand sex from students or threaten retaliation in their academic grades if the students choose not to comply. When did I decide to start speaking up against the violence that women face? I think it was long before sex for grades happened. It was, you know, I I had a job on radio, which was literally what saved my life. At the time where I got the job on radio, I was struggling with school. I was struggling with the personal experience of sexual harassment from my own, you know, lecturer, my course advisor. And I was dealing with that for about two semesters. And, you know, I was just really confused at what to do with my life at that point. And, you know, any opportunity that pops up, I'll just go there out of boredom. I mean, what's the worst that could happen, right? And I found myself on radio. And radio really gave me that voice and that power to speak you know, authoritatively, unlike the power that I had in school. In school, I had no powers. My lecturer had all the power. But on radio, it was my show, and I was running the show. So I think that empowered me to start speaking up against the violence that women like me faced in school. And it was really a moment. I mean, it was just it was a local radio station. It wasn't BBC. <laughs> but we had a very small moment, and it was viral for the very small space that it was in. Because for the first time, students felt empowered enough to call into a radio station and talk about, you know, the things that they go through in school. It wasn't just women, you know, young boys and young men and young women calling in to talk about the things that they face in school. But the predominant story there was sexual harassment. It was very predominant. And this was as far back as, I think, 2009. 
or 2010. This is about 10 years ago, right? And I always took that as my personal agenda. So I grew. That first radio job grew into a second radio job. It grew into a more prominent position as head of programming. And I always carried that agenda with me. Her experience with sexual harassment as a university student fueled her throughout the production stages of the documentary, but it also weighed heavily on her mental state. I found myself in a women radio station. This was a station that was dedicated to women's stories. And then I felt at home. And, you know, that was the point where I met... um, someone who worked in BBC Africa, you know, they needed resources. They were, they were thinking about, you know, doing the story. The last um, um, investigation they did, they got feedback from the population and the feedback was mostly, please investigate universities next. That was the predominant feedback that they had. That's to show you how big that, how huge this problem is like, and we know that the problem is huge, but But we don't still expect what we see when we find out, when we go undercover, when we start researching. And so I was, of course, I was happy to help. I mean, at this point, I'd been on radio for over six years. I'd built a network of people who understood me to be a voice for women. And so I had, you know, all of these networks of women who were, who had safe spaces for other women um, that, that experienced violence at home or in school or different places. And so, you know, they found me to be an asset. We worked together and the more we looked, the, the deeper we, like the deeper we went, the more we found that this problem wasn't just a Nigerian problem. We found, you know, I mean, at least uh, prima facie evidence in different countries. We weren't able to chase all of the stories. We ended up going to Ghana and to other universities in, in Nigeria. And so it was a no-brainer when when it happened, when the situation presented itself. I wasn't thinking about it. I was just doing. I was just acting. Oh, you need this. You need the university students to speak to you. Okay, I'll get you this. And slowly and surely, so many times when we didn't know this project would would become a reality, you know, would cry to sleep. And me especially, <laughs> I, I shed tears because I put my whole life into this project. I. I, nothing else mattered. You know, my family couldn't reach me for long periods. My friends couldn't reach me for long periods because I was so focused on, it was personal for me. It was me 10 years ago, all of a sudden, you know, being faced with a lecturer, not having any power whatsoever. And then there being this liver of hope that maybe we could expose them and then people would see them exactly for who they are. And, and that, that was it. That was it for me. When you're saying that so many people thought that this is a huge problem, you know, one of my best friends and I were talking the other day and we were reflecting on high school and how, you know, some teachers would, um, you know, demand things from us. And we didn't even know it was wrong at that time. We were 15, 14. We didn't even know that was wrong. It was just uncomfortable. And it's unbelievable that that can happen in a space where it's it's supposed to be a safe space, but here is someone preying on you. Yeah, it, it's horrible. And now that you produce this documentary and uh, some lecturers were held to account, suspended, and the Nigeria Senate began to speak about uh, the sexual harassment bill, I wanted to hear from you what happens when women and queer people speak up against the abusers in such a public way? 
I mean, it's usually not, it, it's not the reception that we received with sex for grades. It's quite the opposite, in fact. It's like the women or the queer people are under trial. It's like, I mean, in a place like Nigeria where it's even illegal, same-sex marriage is illegal, like it's on paper. It's like emboldening the people who have this hatred against, you know, um, say, uh, 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 the LGBT community. They're emboldened. They're emboldened and they're in the system. They're the police as well. They are lawyers and they're judges, you know? So it, what happens when they come out to speak up against violence is that they're blamed for their violence. And so someone would say, well, if you were not gay, you wouldn't have gotten beaten up. Or if you're a woman, they would say, if you, if you, if you, if you don't have sharp mouths, we know for beat you, like, we, 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 you know, you wouldn't have gotten beaten up. And this is is actually really close to home. It's... Kiki, what's sharp mouth? I listened to BBC Pigeon, but you need to explain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's true. I got into my, my Nigerian nurse. It's like when, you know, you, you, you talk back, you have a smart mouth. But it's like we expect women to be subservient, to, to not be their own adult. I'm, we're talking about an adult woman here. You know, I mean, if a man talks back at you, no one would see it as anything. We see it as a person who is defending himself. But if a woman does that, she's rude. You know, because we've we've managed to infantilize women and see them as children who shouldn't have strong opinions, who shouldn't talk back at men. And so when they do that and they get beaten, it's like society says, oh, it, you deserve it. Or you, you dress a certain way. You, whatever happens would we'll always find a way to blame the woman or blame the queer person for speaking up against abuse. And it's quite unfortunate. Um, let's come back to you a bit. And you're speaking openly about these issues, which, you know, the, the society maybe does not want people to talk about. And you talk about it online, on the media, almost every single day of your work. So I wonder what your close friends and your family respond to this <laughs> activism that you've chosen to pursue. I didn't even... Why are you laughing? I don't know. <laughs> because I don't... I, I've never... Like, in all my my biographies, I've never really, you know, put activists there. But I, I maybe I'll stop running away from it in 2021. <laughs> but I've always been this person to them. They know. Like, you're not going to tell them about me. They will tell you about me. So all of the things, <laughs> all of the things that you see online, they've had to fight for the past 12 years. And, and they've accepted it. The ones that couldn't accept it, they give me their distance. I mean, I have people that don't talk to me. They've cut me off because I'm always talking that gay stuff. <laughs> or, or that you've come with your equality things. That gay stuff or that equality thing that she's always saying. And I'm like, okay, fine. Become distant family members. I'm good with that. So the ones that are close, they're like, ah, well, some of them don't even agree, but they can't cut me off. They're like, we support you regardless. It's like one of my aunts is like, she doesn't believe in, in gay but okay. I mean, I, I guess she she's starting to see point in that, okay, maybe we shouldn't be violent to them. I mean, that's a step. In the future, she would come to, you know, accept it. So they, I don't know that they think, I don't know what they think about it, to be honest. I just know that they're used to me. They're not surprised when another, when another uh, Twitter dragon, like they call it, happens. They're like, oh, okay, I guess. In three months, we'll expect another one. <laughs> 
they're even tired of responding to people. People will send my mom screenshots. Ah, did you see your daughter? They're like, hey, I saw it too. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, oh, I saw it. What's the problem? Are you asking me for an explanation for what my daughter did? Because you're not getting it. I think that I found that my sister is now an activist. I didn't know when that happened. I don't know when that speech happened. Because I, I noticed that I saw someone on Twitter fighting people. I'm like, this is my sister. <laughs> The name looked familiar. This name, I know this name. <laughs> you know? So yeah, my battle is their battle. Unfortunately, that's how this is who we've become. Their battle is my battle and it's vice versa. Mm, yeah, that, that's super interesting. I mean, I, I know that, you know, even with the sex for grades, I know that your mom and your sister were really instrumental in you deciding to take on this cause. Could you tell me about why why these two women were so useful um in, in your journey in that way i i've been surrounded by strong women i didn't think that there was any other option besides being you know this person as a matter of fact i was the i was the shy one i was the one who didn't quite have a voice they used to think that they would have to come defend me you know i, I can't, you wouldn't believe this is a conversation we had as a child because uh, battery or domestic violence is so popular that we were anticipating it. They were like, oh, if your husband beats you, we'll come and beat him back, you know, because they just felt like I, I didn't have a voice and they just felt like it was imminent that in the future, my husband would probably beat me. So they, they all, you know, there was a very strong support system. My grandmother can physically go and fight you if you touch me. That's my grandmother. My grandmother killed snakes. Like, I just really saw all these powerful women <laughs> around me. And she's so old. You know, she, she has the cutlass in her hand and she's chopping up heads of snakes <laughs> that come to come and me. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so lovely. It's yeah. so crazy. And, you know, that's the kind of person my mom is. My mom is so bold. Like, she says, tell me. Because she says that's what her mother told her if anything is wrong or if anyone does anything to you, tell me she's not going to judge you first. She's just going to defend you first. That's her first line of action, defense. So, and she would, you know, my elder sister, she imbibed it in her. And then, you know, it was, I had no other option. I had to somehow find a way to come out of my shell. Even when I was facing sexual harassment in, in university, I was scared of telling my mom, I didn't want to disappoint her. But when it got to a point where, I mean, there was nothing else I could do. I had to, I had to, I don't know. I, I tried everything. I reported, I did this and nothing was happening and I'd given up already. And so she was the one I called and she told me, you know what, come home. You know, she was far away from me. You know, she had to, she's an immigrant. She's in the US. Uh, she had to leave to find, you know, better economic opportunities so she could send us to school. She needed all her girls to be educated you know, and I, I was I was so sad because I knew that if she was in the country, she would match to that school and have whatever lecturer, you know, that is there by the balls. And she would not apologize for it. But she sounded so sad and she was like, you know what, just come home. I mean, you, you can't die because of school. You start again, right? So that, that it was important. Like, and I later found out in life that my mom sexual harassment in university she dealt with it the way she you know she knows how to deal with it by being that aggressive person she understood I didn't think she would but she actually did and later on I found out that my elder sister actually faced something like that 
unlike me, my my elder sister reported immediately to my mom. My, my mom dealt with it, you know. So she really did understand and she was just really sad that she wasn't physically present to defend me. But yeah, and I had to do this for them and we couldn't repeat that cycle again. I have a younger sister. I would, you know, literally run mad if I hear that this is happening to my younger sister as well. Coming from that strong, um, very clear-minded line of women, uh, you're now working with 15 other women and you formed a really prominent feminist collective called the Feminist Coalition. And it, it gained a lot of recognition as a movement. You take on women's rights, uh, queer rights, and you know other human rights causes. And it's so energizing and exciting to hear about your work. I think that, you know, this coalition, uh, it speaks a lot about the role of women in movement building, you know, pushing conversations. So, you know, tell us about this coalition um, and where you are right now. Um, how's that going? The Feminist Coalition really just when I thought that the most significant event in my life happened in 2019, then 2020 came and then Feminist Coalition happened. And I didn't, at least I didn't see that one coming. Uh, the women in that group, all of us have, you know, some sort of relationship. We've worked with each other once or twice because we're like-minded women, but in different spaces. We have women in tech, you know, women in the medical field, women in media, women in advertising, women in Bitcoin even. <laughs> So, um, Dami Lola, who's the co-founder, Dami and Odun, they are the the two women who came together to to form this coalition. You know, when they reached out to me, because we've done some work before in the past, and they reached out to me that we're trying to form like Kiki. You know, you know, we've talked about this before in one of our sessions, and you know that we need to do these things. We need to have our back backs, and we need to have a strong network that can form, you know, a sort of defense or protection for the women that are not as strong. Like we can recognize our strengths and pull those strengths together to form like one formidable force, right? And that formidable force will be useful to one woman who doesn't have that help or protection that she needs. And I was immediately interested, of course. Uh, we came together and I found out there were even more amazing women in the group. I just, I love every single member. This is so, it was so exciting when we came together. So like we were planning long term, you know, we we're taking our time. We had a couple of pillars that we were interested in education, leadership, financial, uh, financial freedom, basically, because you can't do a lot of things without money. You can't do a lot of things without being informed. Um, so we're facing these pillars and building, you know, slowly. And then NSARS happened and Audrey immediately reached out. She said, you know how these movements go. Women need to be there to protect our collective interests. The woman needs to be there, you know, and so that when it's time for the decision making, we need to make sure that the women's women's um, uh, uh, problems are, you know, are not swept under the carpet because it's a majorly male issue that police brutality issue that we were facing in Nigeria. So, Kiki, could you talk about the Answers Movement for someone who missed what this was? Okay, so. Um, SARS is a police unit that really went rogue in Nigeria and, you know, they were perpetrating violence against ordinary citizens, especially young people. And over time, they sort of faced their target to young men in tech. 
of course, they also had we also had issues against women. We had an issue where a police unit raped a, you know a, a huge number. Like they just went on the streets and bundled up about thirty women in Abuja. You know, they accused them of being prostitutes with no proof whatsoever. You know, and they raped these women in custody. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. Let's talk about there, there's um a member of your collective who's uh leading the Arewa Me Too movement and I wanted you to talk about this movement and how you know different parts of a country as you know diverse and you know large country like Nigeria that there's a whole Me Too movement that's just for a particular area could you speak more about this and what its impact has been? I mean, Fakria, she's such an inspiring person. Like if you see her in real life, you cannot believe the 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 strength she has, you know, the, the people she has shaking in their boots <laughs> are literally physically maybe five times her size. Fakria Hashim, the woman who sparked the Arewa Me Too movement, is a 28-year-old Nigerian activist and writer. Fakria is also a Peace, Security and Development Fellow at the African Leadership Center. She inspires me so much. It's like the Northern Nigeria is, is, is like a different reality from what we face in the rest of Nigeria. I mean, if you, if you even break it down further, we have like six geopolitical zones. If you zone these problems to these places, you would see how the problems are the same, but they are also different. Like in Northern Nigeria, you hear that, oh, um this 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 man you know beats the child and then you find out that the child is his wife and you don't you don't even know okay so what are we hearing are we hearing a case of domestic violence or rape because you shouldn't be with an underage woman you know it's confusing it's and so and, and they're and they're very vocal they're very heated about the people who speak up against the things that they consider normal. They're very vocal about the people who speak up for women's rights. And so she, as much as, I mean, as much as I've observed online, I can't really speak on behalf of her, but as much as I've observed online, she gets threats to her family home, in fact. Um, and yeah, so she, she speaks to the specific issues that they face. Some of the issues would include, you know, body policing, about dressing, some of the issues, some of the most prominent issues, child marriage, you know, and various types of violence against women, even in religious spaces. As diverse as Nigeria is, you need to break down the movement into pieces and then, you know, model it after this area so that it suits these women. We also have another area in Nigeria where their own issue is money wives, where women are seen as currency. If you have four daughters you know you're a rich man because you can always use the your daughters to pay off debts the arewa me too movement is a true representation of how the me too conversation is contextually different in various parts of the world but it still heeds to one call of action while the Me Too movement is often seen as a Western movement, women in Africa have started their own conversations to address social issues in their unique contexts. From Shut It All Down in Namibia, Am I Next in South Africa, Rape National Emergency in Liberia, Child Trafficking in Ivory Coast and Ghana, and the list just goes on. 
you know, I, I know that you're a super busy person, Kiki, and you're carrying this load, you're starting this new project in 2021. Um, could you tell us how you take care of yourself? I know you're a cat mom like me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that self-care or how does self-care look like for you? Oh my God. Every day it changes. Self-care changes for me every day. I have to adapt to my new reality. Um, I, I, right now, I don't even know what self-care is because I'm looking at my hair like, like, okay, you need to do this hair. <laughs> but, you know, at the, <laughs> at the end of the year, last year, I managed to take a trip. And on that trip, it was, it, usually I just like do trips and work together, like one day working, one day relaxing. But that trip was different. I unplugged entirely. I was still on social media. I would see a message. I would not respond to it. I would just be posting my JPEGs, <laughs> my cute holiday pictures in peace. Like you cannot threaten my peace right now. And that helped. It helped me a lot to launch like this energy, this fresh energy that I'm using to work this year. But self-care wise, I'm really just figuring it out. <laughs> I I like to do things like swim. I like to go to the beach just to, you know, just clear my head. I haven't done that since since like Christmas last year I haven't done that in over a month which is unlike me I've just really immersed myself in work but yeah self-care sometimes includes unplugging just seeing a movie hanging out with my cats I mean my cats are even mad at me I don't hang out with them as much (laughs) I know but you know I mean I know that it will get better but yeah that's what self-care looks like for me right now Before we ended the conversation, I had to ask Kiki about her recent achievement, the MTV EMA 2020 Generation Award that seeks to elevate young activists who are transforming the globe. I mean, that was that was quite a shocker for me. Um, To be honest, I mean, we released Sex or Grades in 2019 and the bulk of the awards that I've been receiving, including another one in December, usually revolved around my journalistic work. So it was refreshing to see something else that was not sex for grades. Um, I, I was just—it just shows that people are watching. I didn't think that you know. It came at a really difficult time. We were in the middle of protest in Nigeria, and MTV really put it upon themselves like to support us on the work that we do in you know the work that I do, which includes my work with Feminist Coalition, my work with Document Women. And it was, I was, I was really humbled by that because it was, the the award was for five women across the, the world. And for this part of the world, I was like the woman for this part of the world. And it was really such a humbling thing. Uh, but before you go, could you, you know, tell me where to find you online to follow your work and your project the feminist collective all right so my personal handle is at kiki mordi everywhere you can find me on any platform at k-i-k-i-m-o-r-d-i my two babies (laughs) those are my babies right now because they're my priority the whole of this year feminist coalition and document women uh feminist co is at feminist underscore co on twitter i think is um feminist.co on instagram as well and then document women is document women everywhere it's literally like document and women what we want to do is any way we 
have any any means that we find we find a medium where we can use tattoos to document women we would use it as long as it's a way to document history we want to make sure that the future generation know of all the women that influenced you know leadership influenced politics influenced everything that they now know as society you have been listening to power of the streets a podcast series brought to you by Human Rights Watch. I'm Audrey Kawire Wabwire. That's the end of our show. Check out our show notes for more about Kiki and the Feminist Coalition. In this season of Power of the Streets, we're going to hear stories from Uganda, South Africa, Malawi, Gambia, Burundi, and more personal stories from people who are rising up and leading the Me Too movement. To learn more about Human Rights Watch, please visit hrw.org. And to find out more about what to expect in this season, follow us on Twitter at HRW and on Instagram at Human Rights Watch. Join the conversation using the hashtag Power of the Streets and share your thoughts with Kiki or any of our other guests. And you can tell us how you're speaking truth to power. Our producer is Andy Siwe May, and this is a volume production. The main theme song, Au Revoir, is produced by Young OG Beats. Till next time, thank you for listening.